Welcome back, everyone, to the Cross the Crown podcast. We are episode in the hundreds now. We're like 102, 103. We are very happy to have you uh, join us today on, well, however you listen, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube. You watch us, Doug, in his fancy office background with his platinum gold record, whatever you call <laughs> it. Uh, Doug, our uh, pastor, ministry director, seminary president. And I don't know how good the seminary is because I got an A in Roman. So that should tell you something. Uh, either I didn't teach that teaching. class. Yeah. I didn't teach that class. I'll have to get after uh, Reverend Brown for his uh, giving you a, a high score. Yes. Well, you know, sometimes the word of God just makes it so clear. And then you just got to proofread what you're writing. So, Doug, uh, by the way, a little housekeeping thing as always. We appreciate it. We are over a thousand, kind of comfortably over a thousand now subscribers, which is very exciting. This thing has grown, and we appreciate that. And uh, if you subscribe and do that notifications thing on YouTube, you will find out about the uh, podcast we do, but then the daily Bible study Doug is doing, and that's been really edifying for people. And I would encourage you to do that. Been doing Ecclesiastes. What are you going to be doing after that? You know, somebody asked me that just yesterday. Uh, that's a great question. If if anybody wants to comment in and uh, suggest things. I'm open. We, uh, we're in chapter seven of Ecclesiastes. Got a couple more weeks there, but uh, yeah, I don't know. What what do you want to do? Uh, let's let's battle theonomy and Christian ethics. <laughs> okay. I'm no, doing a Bible awesome. study. Yeah, yeah, that'd be this awesome. podcast. Uh, okay. Uh, well, how about you go through uh, the book of, uh, well, how about this as a Bible study, The either the Sermon on the Mount or some of the parables? I think that would be good. Hmm. Think people that would be like good. Those. Yeah, yeah. I'll give that some give that some thought. Uh, yeah. Ecclesiastes has been great, by the mm-hmm. way. Uh, I've got a lot of positive feedback, and uh, it's just man, it's a great book for today. So, uh, and people can go back and watch past episodes and join us tomorrow. Join me tomorrow at seven thirty a.m. Mountain. Now, are you considered Mountain Time? We're considered Arizona Mountain Time because we don't do daylight savings time. But it is uh, it would be the same time as you. So seven thirty your time would be nine thirty Eastern, six thirty Pacific. In yes. Central Time, I don't even know what what your time is anymore. So, but that's uh, that's how it's going, and uh, that'd be really good. We're kind of doing a Bible study. Our current podcast series, we're going through Romans five, six, seven, and probably touch on a little bit of eight. And use and the whole point was to get to Romans seven. And the reason we're doing that is because for it to make sense, especially the passage that we want to focus on, the. Uh, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice evil that I don't want to do. And people, in general, believing that is talking about the normal Christian life, the struggle of wanting to honor God, but man, I still have sin, and i got to sin, and it's just a struggle. We're saying it's not saying that, and the reason we're not saying that is the context of 5, 6, 7, and into a little bit of 8. So today, Doug is going to exegetically go through chapter 7, verse by verse, in the Greek, And that will be fun. We'll be explaining that to you. But so, Doug, why is this? Because this was the crux of why we decided to dive into this. What do you think causes? And I think you addressed this last week. Actually, people want to go back and listen. But what do you think causes such? Because at times it seems like that's the plain reading. So what do you think causes this confusion of the text? Well, there's some basic presuppositions that we bring to Romans 7 based on what we've been taught by pastors and uh, read in books and that kind of thing. Um, number one is we we see, I think you alluded to this, uh, he, he, there's this struggle, right? He talks about, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. And that matches our experience so well. We all know that that's the case. There have been times when I said, I, I'm going to stop this, I don't want to do that anymore, that's sinful, and we do it anyway. So it, it just relates. And so we read Romans 7 from that perspective, and we take some comfort. that Even Paul had struggles. He wasn't perfect. Uh, the whole idea of original sin, which, which I avow, I, I support, but this uh, flesh being sinful nature. There was a time when the NIV translated flesh as sinful nature. I think the newer versions don't do that anymore. Uh, in fact, it was your your friend and mine, Jeff Volker, who corrected me at a conference I was speaking at back in uh, June ah. or July, because <laughs> I made that statement that uh, the flesh uh, is translated sinful nature, and he said <laughs> right in the middle of the talk, not anymore. So it was, <laughs> it was a good good correction. Yeah. Um, but we have this idea that when the Bible talks about our flesh, 
it means our sinful nature. Well, does it? How would you prove that? We'll, we'll see that as we dive in uh, today. Um, and then there's the theological assumption that people bring because of good, sound, reformed theology that unregenerate man is, is un, unable to do anything good. And Paul here in Romans 7 talks about wanting to do the law. He's agreeing that in his mind he wants to do it. And Reformed theology says that cannot be an unbeliever because the unbeliever doesn't want to do anything good. Well, that's going beyond what the scripture actually says, and it doesn't fit the context. So what I'm going to try to show today is the context says Romans 7 is not about a believer, absolutely can't be about a believer, or else he needs to stop teaching what he's teaching in chapter 6. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's that's really good. And so uh, let's just go ahead and, and dive right in. Uh, Romans 7, um, and, and, I, and I, the reason I brought that up too was I'm sure everyone's headline, when you get to verse 14, that starts that section that we're so concerned about, says, the problem of sin in us is what the CSB has. I don't know. I think the uh, if I looked last week, I actually, it's weird. I use a CSB here at church. I take an NASB, which you, I'm sure, appreciate. The non-Armenian yeah, standard good. Bible, as Daryl Harrison calls it. <laughs> and yeah, I think it has something similar, too, as as a headline. So let's get into it, and if questions come up, we'll, we'll, we'll get to them. But let's try and get through the first, you know, 13 verses pretty quickly, I think, till we get to the section. So. Well, we'll see how quickly. Okay, yeah. so uh, being the, the pastor theologian that I am, we have to back up. You can't just jump into 7 because here's the key to understanding chapter 7. Please hear me clearly <laughs> when you read chapter 7. Romans 7 is simply Romans 6 applied to Jews. I will show you that as we go, but that's the key to unlocking it. That's the key to understanding it. You got to know chapter 6 and then read chapter 7 as Paul making the same points, only it's to the Jews. So let's uh, take a look together here at uh, chapter 6. Not all of it. We looked at that last week, but just to highlight the, the things to recap. He begins by, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? His answer, may it never be. No way. Why? Why can we not continue in sin? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Lock that into your memory banks here. He's talking about people in Christ who are dead to sin. He's talking about a death. Now, obviously, it's not our physical death, right? It's our spiritual death. We are dead to sin. Uh, What does that mean? Do you remember from last week what we talked about? You are dead to sin? Mm Mm-hmm. That, uh, yes, I do. Let me make sure I just want to read (laughs) I caught you off guard. You you weren't expecting me to stop so soon. Well, no, I was like, I was kind of reading ahead a little bit to see where you were going to go again. But uh, dead to sin means dead to your old nature, is, I believe, what we were talking about. Like, the... You have, because of the previous podcast, is about you have the ability to not sin anymore, which a non-believer never really does. Mm-hmm. Would was that what we were kind of saying? So yeah, dead yes. to that nature. Yes, and and he creates he personifies sin through these two chapters. It, uh, we talked about the two different reigns: the the reign of grace and the reign of sin. Master sin mm-hmm. tells the unbeliever what to do, and Paul here is saying. You died to that realm. You are not under the control of master sin any longer. You're dead. And if you're dead, then you don't continue to obey because you're dead. So we died to sin. Or do you not know, he says, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So you're dead, you come back to life, you have new life, and it's a resurrected life, it's life in Christ, and now you can please him. That's the, that's the main point. Verse 5, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and this is what you were alluding to, the old man, here it says old self, that old man was crucified with him. In order that our, what's the next phrase? Make sure we have the same thing here. Uh, 
Vertigo. First six. First six. There it is. In order, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Is what uh, before that, is. what's done away? What's, so what's that destroyed? the body ruled by sin may be rendered powerless. Okay, in the Greek, it's just body of sin. Okay. Okay? That's going to be very important in chapter 7. When we were crucified with Christ, that old man was crucified, and our body of sin. And I think uh, the CSB there does a fair job of interpreting it uh, by saying the body ruled by sin. But the, the phrasing is just the body of sin. Think about that. Your body, our body, he's describing as a body of sin. And it's going to be destroyed, or it is destroyed when we die. We talked about this last week. When you're dead... You're no longer sinning. Your body is not causing you to sin any longer. And then the result is what you just said. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So we went over this. And I, and I know anybody who listened to that is like, oh, it's just doing last week yeah. again. It's so important to under, understand chapter 7 to get this right. If you are in Christ, you are not a slave to sin. Right? That's what he says. And he goes on and says it over and over again in chapter 6. You are not enslaved to sin. You are freed from sin. Sin is not your master. You serve righteousness, not sin. Well, and you, uh, last week, coming off this, and I, I kind of like do it to like tease the podcast and let people know, and I tweeted, like, we are slaves to righteousness. Imagine that. Imagine mm-hmm. thinking that. It doesn't mean uh, we still don't sin, or something like that, and you had corrected and said, um, why does it, your identity comes across the way I tweeted it was, yeah, but I'm still a sinner. But that's not your identity. You are in Christ, and you still sin. So I think that was a really good clarification of even those who may agree with this view, we still kind of struggle with it, because, like you said, just our natural inclination or our natural mind is telling us, yeah, but I still sin, and I still sin a lot. But that isn't our identity. Paul is saying we are slaves to righteousness. We have been raised to life with Christ. And he does that throughout all his epistles, too. We can get into it mm-hmm. later, but it's just it's interesting. Like Colossians 3 is one of my favorites. If you have been raised up, seek the—well, a person who is enslaved to sin can't seek the things above. It is not mm-hmm. possible. So, yeah. Yeah, we are not sinners. We do sin. But that's, that's, that's crazy. And so he's emphasizing this point. You're not a slave to sin. I want everybody who's listening to this, repeat after me. In Christ, you are not a slave to sin because you need to understand that to understand Romans 7. Mm-hmm. So then in verse 14 here of chapter 6, he makes this statement that seems out of the blue. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you which he's already said. Right. Why? Because. For you are not under law. He's anticipating where he's going in chapter 7. Mm-hmm. You're not under law. Now think about that. He is saying that if you were under law, you would be a slave to sin. But since you are not under law, you're not a slave to sin. And every reference of law, I believe we have established here, is the Mosaic law, correct? Correct. Yes. Correct. So let me just, let me, I won't walk us through all of this. I'll just highlight it. You can check me later. But let's just think about what he said already in this book about law. Back in chapter three, he said, we've already established the Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. So everybody knows Gentiles were under sin. Everybody knows they were under the control Mm -hmm. of sin. But he's making the point in chapter 3, even the Jews were under sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God, including Jews. They thought they were righteous because they had the law. Paul says, no, they were under sin as well. Chapter 5, verse 20, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the law came in not to make the Jews more righteous, but to actually increase their sin. It enslaved them. The law enslaved the Jew. It's the same thing he says in Galatians chapter 3. It enslaved the Jew and made the Jew sin more. And Paul says here in chapter 6, 
you are not a slave to sin because you're not under law, the law. See, is that point clear? Paul is stating over and over again in different ways. The law put the Jew in slavery to sin. Does that, does that make sense? Are we, mm-hmm. we good on that? All right. So now let's go ahead and get into chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's talking about Jews here. He's talking to Jews. I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Already you can hear where he's going with this. As long as you're alive, the law has, has the authority over you. When you die, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Now he gives this, uh, this analogy. Uh, verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband, right? So if there's a death in this relationship, the living party is freed from the law. Verse 3, so then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another. So it's a little uh, backwards from... You dying, it's the spouse dying here. In this case, the, the woman's husband dies. But the point of the, of the metaphor is simple. When death occurs, that law of marriage no longer applies. Mm-hmm. So verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Who's he talking to, Josh? Jews talking to Jews. He says that in verse one, I'm talking to the Jews, you, my brothers, you, my Christian brothers from Judaism, you also were made to die to what? To the law. If you're dead to the law, the law has no more jurisdiction over you. That's what the point he just made in verses two and three. So the Jew is dead to the law through the body of Christ. For what purpose? So that you may be joined to another, to whom? To him who was raised from the dead. So the Jew had to die to the law and be raised and joined to Jesus in order that, end of verse 4, that we might bear fruit for God. Yeah, question. I see the hand. Yeah. I see that hand. Here's a question then. Would it be okay then to say, I think I know what you're going to say this, more in this section, you can infer, and I know uh, we being New Covenant people like to be strictly biblical and get accused of being bibliophiles <laughs> or whatever it is, biblicists. But when Christ died and was raised again, the law died with him. The law of Moses died with him. And we are raised now, when he was raised, we now have the law of Christ. Yes. Now, as Gentiles, as believers, we were never under the mm-hmm. law, but the law itself, um, did the law die? Well, at the end of the Old Covenant, it became obsolete, it became mm-hmm. useless. Yeah, I'd probably sign up with that, depending on how you're, how you're defining your terms. Right. But we do know that, that when Christ raised, if we're raised with him, uh, the, the, we had death um, to our old nature, to who we were. And so... Mm-hmm. The reason I brought that up is because he's making the argument here that, well, while you were under the law, you were under death. So I just. Yeah. But remember, Jews only were under the law. Gentiles not under the law. Yeah. Okay. So this is consistent with everything he's been saying. Mm -hmm. You can't bear fruit for God when you're under the law because the law makes you a sin, uh, makes you a slave to sin. That's the case of the Jew. And he explains what he means. Verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. See, he's just repeating what he's already said. The law caused the Jew to sin more. It aroused sin in them, which led to their condemnation, their death. Now, I made the point earlier, flesh. We think of flesh as sinful nature. In this context, that is not what it means. Well, at least it doesn't go far enough. Flesh here is parallel to what in verse 4? Through the body of Christ, so you may belong to one another. You belong to him who raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So are you talking? Verse 4. 
That was verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you were also put to death in relation to the law. Yeah, the... that's it. Okay. That's it. It's parallel. Being in the flesh is parallel to the Jew living under the law. Now, why? In chapter 6, he talked about the body of sin. Why would he now switch to the flesh? Why would he use the word flesh? Uh, flesh and body are not exact synonyms, but they're, they're similar. They're related. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the New Testament does use, use the word flesh for what we would think of as body. But you're thinking caps on, you're a Jew. You're writing to Jews. Why mention flesh instead of body? Uh, circumcision? Yes. If you look at Galatians chapter 6, if you look at, uh, is it Genesis 17, 18, where God gives the uh, the right of circumcision to Abraham, over and over and over again, he says, circumcised in the flesh. You must circumcise in the flesh. You must circumcise yourself in the flesh, your servants, your, your children, everybody in the flesh, in the flesh. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, these Judaizers, all they want to do is have you circumcised so they can boast in your flesh. He's already used it that way in in Romans chapter 2. So he uses it here, chapter 6, I mean chapter 7, for a purpose. He's talking to Jews. While we were in the flesh, not just while we were in our sinful nature, Jews, but while we were wrapped up in the law and circumcision. That's what he's talking about when he says flesh. And what was the case when we were Jews in the flesh holding to our circumcision under the law. He says, sinful passions were aroused by that law and they worked in our body, comes back to body, to bear fruit for death. Verse six, but now we have been released from the law. That word released is is the same word as the body of death was destroyed. I mean, sorry, the body of sin was destroyed in chapter six. Here is translated released. We have now been released from the law. We Jews released from the law. You see that? We are released Mm -hmm. from the law. Having died to that by which we were bound, they were bound to the law, now they're released. Why? Because they're dead. That whole realm of law and sin, they're dead to it. So that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Now, our Reformed brothers love to come to this and say, you're still supposed to keep the law, but you're supposed to keep it in the, in the newness of the Spirit, not in the letter. So it's not about the letter of the law. They, they will, they'll go to the Sermon on the Mount and they'll say, see, Jesus here is giving us the correct interpretation of the law of Moses. And that's what he means by uh, serving in the Spirit. Yes, you're still supposed to keep the letter of the law, but you do it with a genuine heart. That's not what he's talking about. Letter here is the same phrase he uses in 2 Corinthians 3 and other places to talk about the tablets of stone. We serve God, Jews in Christ, serve God by the power of the Holy Spirit, which he will spend lots of time in chapter 8 describing, not by keeping the tablets of stone. I'm going to make a quick observation based on all that. And here's, I think, the problem that our friends in the Reformed community, especially those in the little R R Reformed community, our, our Baptist 1689 friends, is that them not as much. They're closer to us than, than they realize, but the regular Reformed Baptist and the Presbyterian, is that they're so afraid of what this means, I think, because they then wouldn't know how to properly, I don't mean this insultingly, but I think this is true, exegete, go through, show how the Old Covenant applies now. And they're worried about what it does to the Old Testament. Hmm. And we have gone through why that's not even the case for how we view the law, but I'm just saying based on that, based on what you're saying, that is one of the things I've heard. You're a Marcionite. You are this. You are that. Because they are so afraid, we are just taking the larger chunk of Scripture and going, eh, it doesn't really apply, right? And I think that's their concern. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a valid concern. We don't want to say the Old Testament doesn't apply, but we want to apply it the way Jesus tells us to mm. and not, uh, not bring it forward to something that's going to crush people and arouse sin. That's what he said. Right. Yeah, great observation. All right, so that would lead the Jew mm-hmm. to ask a question. If the law provokes sin, if the law kills the Jew and he can't please God, he can't bear fruit for God with the law, he can only bear fruit for death, 
Then he's going to ask this question in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's a reasonable question. You're telling me, Paul, the law was sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Same thing he said in chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that sin would increase. Chapter Mm -hmm. 3, he said, by the law we know our sin. That's what he's saying here. I would have come to know sin except for the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Um, (laughs) Which is an interesting phrase for our Reformed brothers as well. But I, I will move on. Yeah. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, he's making a point here, right? He's not trying to give us a full-on, complete theology of any of this. He's making a point. He's showing what it's like as a Jew for the law to reveal his sin and increase his sin. So he's saying, you know, I'm going through life just fine. And then the law comes in and says, don't covet. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking about coveting so much. And then the law says, don't covet. And now I start coveting. That's what he says. Verse eight, but sin, it's not even, he, he, this is going to be crucial for the rest of the passage. He's saying, it's not even me who's sinning here. I, I, there's this thing in me called sin. Now, at the end of the day, he's not saying he's not the one doing it, but he's making Mm -hmm. a point. Sin takes this opportunity through the commandment and produced in me coveting of every kind. Again, he's a slave to sin. The law was uh, there. Sin was dead, rather, apart from the law. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Mm -hmm. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now, again... If we're going to let systematic theology drive our interpretation of things, if we're going to let reformed theology drive our interpretation of things, think about what he just said, verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. What does he mean by that? Our theology tells us the unbeliever is dead. Is he talking about pre-conversion here or post-conversion? I was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. We would be talking about pre-conversion. It has to be, yeah. right? If it's post-conversion, it doesn't make any sense. He died, yeah. he's post-conversion, and the law killed him. If it's pre-conversion, Paul is saying there's a sense in which I was alive. Well, and he would be undoing his whole argument in 5 and 6 before he even gets to what we're getting to in uh, the end of chapter 7, and would be undoing his argument in, especially in Galatians, right? If uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's a big statement. And again, our Reformed brothers need to figure out how they're going to deal with that. I was alive, and then the commandment came. Was he spiritually alive? No. He's making a point. He's saying, I was living my life. I wasn't thinking about it. Uh, it from this perspective, I was not coveting. Does it mean he wasn't coveting at all? I don't think so. So have you read any, you know, people? I mean, there are even some in New Covenant who hold to the opposite view of what uh, we're going through today. What is their argument? How do they dance around this? Like a Presbyterian trying to dance around Galatians 3 and 4 and saying it's about pedo-baptism, even though they're like, I don't know. How do they get around this? Um, they would probably agree with me through verse 13. So they okay. would agree he's, he's making an analogy. Um, he, he's just simply describing, you know, making a point that uh, sins are aroused when, you know, you tell your child, you'll learn this soon as soon as your mm-hmm. kids become more mobile. Uh, don't go in that room. And now all they can think about is going into that room. Right. Uh, right. They're, they're happy as a lark not being in that room until they're told not to, and then they want it. So they would agree that that's what he's saying here, but then they think he's shifting to a different point in verse 14, which he's not. Okay. Okay. So I was alive apart from the law. The commandment came and killed me. Verse 10, this commandment, which was to result in life, do this and live, God said. This commandment that was supposed to show me how to have eternal life, uh, he says it proved to be result in death for me. Why? For sin, keeps coming back to this personified idea of sin, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment 
it deceived me. So this, I've got this thing in me called sin. I hear this do not covet command and sin deceives me. And through the commandment, it killed me. He's saying, as a Jew now, the law came in, provoked sin, sin deceives me, and now I'm dead. I'm condemned. I, I stand before God in judgment. So then, verse 12, the, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. No way is he leaving any room for someone to say the law was bad. The law killed me, yes. The law provoked sin, yes. But it's not because of the law. It's because of this thing in me called sin. The law is good. That's important. So, Paul, <laughs> if the law is good and yet it killed me, is it, is it the law the cause of my death? Verse 13, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? This good law? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. I'm under master sin. I'm enslaved to sin. I have this thing in me called sin. It wasn't the law. It wasn't this good thing that caused my death. It was sin in me. It affected my death through that which is good. It took this good thing, the law, and used it as something to kill me. Why? So that the commandment, through the commandment, I should say, sin would become utterly sinful. We the Jews showed how wicked they were by taking this great commandment of God, this holy commandment, which was to give them life, and perverting it into something that would bring about death. That just shows how wicked sin is. Mm-hmm. Now, in this, uh, in the NAS here, and probably in your Bible as well, is there a paragraph break and a heading, a new heading yes. over verse 14? This What's is the, the one, heading the say? problem of sin in us, beginning at verse 14. Yes, I want to encourage everybody, remind everybody, even those who are using the uh, superior version of the NASB, these headings are not inspired, and in almost every case, they are completely wrong in this section. There is no chapter break, there's no section break, there's no break of context. What is the first word of verse 14? Four. Four. That means he is continuing what he just said. He is proving what he just said. He is giving an explanation or evidence or a cause of what he just said. Right. So and this all is changing. ties in to chapter six because chapter seven begins since. So he's mm-hmm. still explaining chapter six. But like you said, now he's kind of switched to the same argument, but to his Jewish brethren. Right. You were in Christ, you were dead to sin. Before that, you're enslaved to sin. That's that's the point. For we know, still talking to Jews here, we know the law is spiritual, but I am, what does your say, the next two words? Of the flesh. I am of the flesh. Now, I'm going to scroll back up here and show in verse 5, it says... While we were in the flesh, mm-hmm. does the CSB have we were in the flesh in verse 5? It does. So back there, he's saying we were in the flesh under the law, implying that we are no longer in the flesh, right? We died. Yeah. Now in verse 14, he's saying, I am of flesh. He's not talking about a Christian He's talking about the Jew. This whole section is him describing, not, this is not even autobiographical. Mm-hmm. He's continuing his illustration. What was it like for a Jew under God's law? A Jew who was enslaved to sin. What was it like? He says, I am of flesh. Now, this is what throws everybody off. This present tense, I am instead of I was. Mm-hmm. But he's just making a point. He does something kind of similar in uh, in Second Corinthians, when he talks about, I know this man. I don't know whether it was in the in the in reality or not. Basically, goes up to the third heaven. He he starts describing himself in the third person. But this man who got to go up into the to the heaven of heavens and sees these visions that uh, he wasn't allowed to talk about. He, he he does this kind of thing. He he shifts into a different person to, for illustration. Here he shifts into the first person, not because he's describing his own experience now, but he's uh, he, he's he's illustrating what it was like for the Jew. He says, I'm of flesh. 
Now, what does your CSB say? At, what's the last phrase of verse 14? Sold as a slave to sin. Okay. Can you repeat that? Sure. I'll just read the whole thing. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, comma, sold as a slave to sin. Okay. Anybody who's been with us through our study of chapter six last week, even the repeated emphasis, and I, I told you, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm beating this horse. He's not dead yet. I'm telling you, this horse is mm-hmm. not dead. How many different ways has Paul insisted that in Christ, we are not enslaved to sin? And here Paul says, I am a slave to sin. Mm-hmm. This cannot be describing a believer, and it isn't describing a believer. He's describing a Jew who was under God's law, and that law enslaved him to sin. I don't know why, even though I've held to this view for a while and studied it, uh, for some reason that had never, that part of the argument had never really come out to me, just because I always thought he was contradicting himself if, 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 it's, if he's talking about a believer when you get to that section, which is true. But if you get to verse 14 and then realize that words as a slave to sin, then you go back and tie it to what he said at the beginning of chapter 7 and verse 6, or chapter 6, he would be completely lying then. He would say, I'm not this thing that I just said I was, or a new believer is, or any believer for that matter. So it's, yeah, it's, I don't know why, but thank you for, for pointing that out. Well, that's exactly it. That's why I beat that horse and beat mm-hmm. that horse and beat that horse, because you've got to understand how passionate he is to tell you you're not a slave to sin to make the connection here, because we've been so ingrained theologically that this is a Christian. No, it's not. No, it's not. This is a Jew under the law trying to keep the law, and he's a slave. He's a slave to sin. And he goes on to describe that experience as a Jew trying to keep the law. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am practicing what I would like to do. I'm sorry, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do this very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Right? He's just saying as a Jew, I hear the law, I hear the commandment, And I agree, that's God's law. I Mm. should stop coveting. That's a good thing to do, to stop coveting. The law is good. I agree with God, but I can't stop coveting. Mm. I can't stop it. Why can't he stop it? Because he's a slave, right? Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Same thing he's been saying all along. I have this thing in me called sin. And I say, I'm, I'm going to keep the law. But I can't. Why? Because I have this thing called sin in me. It dwells in me. It's taken up residence in me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Remember, flesh is not simply sinful nature. It's the circumcised Jew under the law. There's nothing good inside me that is in my flesh. Me, the one who is that circumcised Jew, there's nothing good in me. Why? Well, the, for the willing is present. I want to stop coveting, but the doing of the good is not. Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now, here's where all Reformed brothers jump in and say, original sin, total depravity. There's no way Paul is talking about wanting to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Because we've been taught for hundreds of years now, actually probably back to Augustine even, that without using this word total depravity, that's a newer term, but we are so totally depraved that nobody can want to do anything good apart from regeneration. I don't think that's biblically true. I think the thing is they can't do good. They don't do good because they're slaves to sin. 
But remember when uh, Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and he says, you are not far from the kingdom. I mean, this man is wrestling with stuff and he's saying, I'm willing to follow you. And Jesus says, great, keep the commandments and you'll have eternal life. I've kept them all. Okay, well, sell everything and come follow me. You want to be my disciple? Come follow me. Sell all your richest stuff and come after me. And he he went away sad because he didn't want to give up his stuff. But Jesus said, you're not far. You're close. In chapter 10, let let me pull this up for us here. In chapter 10 of Romans, come on, technology, give me what I want here. Okay, chapter 10. Verse, verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, that's for the Jews, is for their salvation. Why? Verse 2, for I testify about them who aren't, they're not saved. These are Jews who are not saved. He just said he wants their salvation. These Jews who are not saved, I testify that they have a, what? A zeal, zeal for, for God. God. Yeah. These are unregenerate unsaved Jews. And Paul says they have a zeal for God. There is something in them that wants to please God, but they don't and they can't. So we're going beyond the scripture when we believe that it's impossible for a Jew who has the law of God, it's impossible for him to want to do it in any sense. It's not what the scripture says. So the pushback from the Reformed community, from our brothers and sisters in Christ who are staunchly Reformed, staunchly total depravity. And again, we hold to the—we've talked about this here—the premise of the doctrines of grace. We believe Mm -hmm. people are depraved until they're saved. We understand that. But the argument is all righteousness is like filthy rags, right, until you are—even our best, even our good works is like filthy righteousness— um, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Those kind of there's none who seek God. There's none who do, does good. There is um, the human heart is wicked beyond who can understand it. So that would be their pushback. You kind of answered the reply, but if you want to dive into that just a little bit more about what is the response to that, then like how can how can you now say someone actually can do good? Who is not saying they? I'm not saying they can. In fact, I'm saying they can't do good. Mm-hmm. But there could be some part of them that wants to. Okay. That's crucial. That's important. Uh, And they can't keep the law in a sense. And what I mean by that is they never committed adultery. Mm -hmm. That would be, and they were doing it out of a works-based system, certainly, but that's a good thing that they didn't commit adultery. So they're wanting to do that very thing. There are plenty of non-believing people who are great husbands, right? They don't commit adultery. They love their wife. They care for her. They protect her. They nurse all those things, not realizing they're doing it unregenerate. We pray they come to faith, but they're still wanting to do good. Does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, certainly unbelievers don't commit every sin they could, uh, and they're not as evil as they could. You know, Hitler Mm -hmm. probably loved his mother, um, and that's a good thing if he loved his mother. He should love his mother, right? Yeah. What we're saying is unbelievers cannot obey God perfectly. To to some degree, they may want, they may even hear hear the the truth of Christ and say, I I want that. I want to stop sinning. I want to do these things. I want to love my wife better. But they can't if they're an unbeliever. They can't get there in every aspect. In some aspects, they might get somewhere and, and, Mm -hmm. and that's not, we have to be always be careful what question we're really answering. Is the atheist who loves his wife, who treats her well, is he honoring God in that? Well, from one perspective, yes, it's better to treat your wife well than to treat her poorly, mm-hmm. but he's not doing it out of a devotion to God. So in that sense, it falls short. It's not, it's not righteous. It feels a little bit like the, does God love everybody? Well, yes, but in what sense? He allows the rain and the sun to fall on the just and the unjust. It doesn't mean, you know, D.A. Carson did a real, shocking, right? D.A. Carson did a really good podcast on the phrase, God loves the sinner, hates the sin. And he's like, yeah, let's break that down a little bit. Kind of true, kind of not. And then he goes through and kind of explains that. It's kind of what you're saying here, too. 
Yeah, this, this is the danger of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. And we've got a whole course on intro biblical theology people can take to get into this. We talk about it. We teach yeah. it in NCST. We've got uh, videos on YouTube. Just look up uh, intro to biblical theology. It's one of the dangers of systematic theology. Mm-hmm. What question are you answering? Does God bless unbelievers? Yes. Is that called love? Yes. He sends the rain on unbelievers, mm-hmm. just as you said. The same Bible says he is angry with the wicked every day. So from one perspective, God loves the unbeliever. From another perspective, he hates him. And we have to be a little more nuanced in our thinking and not just draw these theological conclusions. Not a lot to be nuanced, Doug. Everything's black and white. This is, <laughs> exactly. this is the world we live in. Jesus, knowing punishment was coming on his people, and he was the one who's going to pour out the punishment on his people, still wept over his people. He loved exactly. them. In that moment. Exactly. Yeah. So is it true that the unbeliever is enslaved to sin? Yes. Is it true that the Jew under the law was enslaved to sin? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it true that he had no desire whatsoever to obey God? No. He did. Jews had some desire there. They had a zeal for God. That's what Paul's getting at here in chapter 7. So his, his conclusion, verse 21, is, I find then the principle, and I wish the NAS was, this is where they drop the ball. That's the word law. Mm-hmm. That's the word nomos. He's making a play on words here. He's been talking about the law, the law, the law. Verse 21, I find then the law. What does the CSB have? So I discover this law. Yeah, see, very good, CSB. Mm-hmm. I find then this law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. My mind is saying, yes, keep the law. It's God's law. Any rational person would agree. Any rational Jew. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Now, you should already be anticipating where... I and Paul are going with this. Mm-hmm. I see a different law in my body. I tried to beat this horse dead from chapter six. The body. Oh, I'm about to give it away. Hold on for the punchline. It's coming. I know. <laughs> I see, see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a. What's the next word? Prisoner to the law. A prisoner. A prisoner is very similar to a slave. Paul says, I am imprisoned to the law of sin, which is in my members, which is in Mm -hmm. my body. Is that describing a chapter six man? Is that describing a man who's dead to the law, a dead to sin, dead to master sin, a man who is freed from sin? Absolutely not. He says, I see in my mind, I'm saying, yes, keep the law. In my body, I'm saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. I'm enslaved. I'm a prisoner. I'm losing. That is not a Christian. That is not a Roman six guy. That is not someone who's dead to sin in Christ. This is someone who still lives under the law in the realm of master sin. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from? the body mm-hmm. of this death. Chapter 6, verse 6, the body of sin has been destroyed in Christ. Chapter 7, verse 24, I'm wretched and I desperately need to be freed from this body. Mm-hmm. Chapter 6 is talking about the Christian. Chapter 7 is talking about the Jew who is still enslaved to sin. He's not a believer. He needs release from that body that causes so much sin. Yeah. And if he was talking about the human Christian condition of fighting against the things we want to do, temptation, etc., and then doing them, thanks be to God as he ends it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Based on that ending of that chapter, even though chapter 8 kind of ties in to at least like the first two verses, right, of, of this argument, is he would have, again, as I keep saying, just undid everything he did by his little 
doxology praise there to the Lord. Right. Yeah. Right. And and he doesn't. Now, verse 25, I believe he does get to the punchline a little early. Mm-hmm. He, he, he After saying, who will save me from this body of death, he, he has to give the answer. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He, he, he does this all the time, right? A spontaneous uh, doxology. And then he finishes his argument. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. I'm saying I should stop sinning. I should obey. But on the other, with my flesh... I'm serving the law of sin. He's a slave. Which is why chapter 8 is so glorious. Therefore, there is now, now that he has been freed, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, play on words here again, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, Jews, from the law of sin and death. He's still talking about the Mosaic law here. Right. So the thing we love to say, which is true, again, I'm caveating, right? I know you don't like when I do that, that we <laughs> are no longer condemned. We will not be judged um, and deserving God's wrath if we are in Christ. There's no condemnation. This is not talking about that as we so often think then. This is talking about condemnation my conscience from the law, basically. Is that correct? Is that what Paul is talking about here? Uh, both and. It certainly okay. applies to all of us. Okay. There is no condemnation for anybody who's in Christ. Yeah. But he's still talking about the Jews. Now, in application, so uh, people are going to hate hate this, right? I mean, this is this is one of our favorite verses, and it should be. I'm not in any way suggesting mm-hmm. to reduce. This is true for every one of us in Christ. We are not condemned. But he has not left his context. So he's saying for the Jew who's enslaved to the law, he has been freed from that in Christ, and he's not condemned by the law. He's been freed from the law of sin, that law that produces sin, that's the Mosaic law, which ultimately brought to death. We see that we know that because of verse 3, for what Mm -hmm. the law could not do. What could it not do? It couldn't free anybody. It couldn't justify anybody. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. The law through circumcision could not free anybody, could not uh, justify anybody. God did it, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was circumcised, but he was not a sinner. As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the the next word here I have is requirement. I wish it was literal translation here is justification. Justification so that the justification of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. That is, we're not Jews anymore. They are not Jews anymore. Same point he made in chapter 2. But who walk according to the Spirit. Let me finish this quickly here. For those who are according to the flesh, that's the Jew. Mm -hmm. They set their minds on the things of the flesh, trying to keep God's law. But those who are according to the Spirit, that's all of us who are in the Spirit, We keep our minds on the things of the Spirit. As he said in chapter 7, that's how we can please God. For the mind, literally, verse 6, mind of the flesh, is what it says, is death. That's a point he's been making. If your mind is focused on the flesh, if it's focused on keeping the law, it's only only going to lead to death. But the mind of the Spirit is eternal life. And peace with God. Why? Because the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. Now you say, wait a minute. He just said, with my mind, I joyfully concur. Yes, it's a different different question he's answering. This Jew whose mind is on the fleshly things, the law things, he's in the midst of this battle described in chapter 7. He can't keep the law, so now he becomes an enemy to God because he's disobedient. He stands under God's wrath. He's hostile toward God. For, verse, end of verse 7, it does not subject itself to the law of God. The mindset on the flesh, on the circumcision, on the law, does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Mm-hmm. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh... What did he say in chapter 7, verse 5? We were in the flesh. Mm-hmm. 
Here he's saying those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The Jew who's in the flesh is under the law. He's condemned. If you're a Christian, you are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. So he says, verse 8, verse 9 here, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And he goes on to describe all the glories of having the flesh. I mean, sorry, having the <laughs> spirit. And it this does apply to all of us. This is now broadening it back out to every one of us. We walk in the spirit. We put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. We groan with the spirit. All those things are glorious truths for all of us. Mm-hmm. But the context of chapter seven is not you as a Christian. It's Paul as a Jew trying to keep the law. Yeah. And so really appreciate you. And remember that when you see flesh, we do think because we've been so ingrained to think of my terrible sin nature my desires, my anger, those kind of things is such the flesh is in the Christian world, this horrible thing. And I think we get away from what the context is and what Paul is talking about here. And so I think that's important to be reminded of that. And again, as always, to the point of what's going on in Romans, you kind of have the Jewish Christians who've come back and now the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians are fighting. And Paul's like, hey, I need you guys to be strong so we can take the gospel to Rome, right? Or out of mm-hmm. Spain. This is really important. So he's trying to get them to be unified in the gospel, in Christ. And I think Israel's trying to say, like, as always, it seems like the struggle with the Jewish Christian early on. And I understand. I'm not at all dismissing it. We had this great for like 3,000 years, 5,000 years, however long it was. And now... You're wanting us to give all that up? My, you know, it's it's a struggle, I think. And so I think we sometimes, we immediately try to read ourselves into a situation to go, well, I'm like that. Well, yeah, but you're, that's not what he's talking about. Roman, or, you know, like Jeremiah 29, 11, we've talked about that. It's fun to come to that verse and go, God has great things planned for me. He's going to prosper. He's not going to harm me. And then... We want that. We don't, we've lost the context because we see a verse that jumps out because we read scripture the same. We flatten it out, which is wrong to do, as we know. But we read a proverb, which can apply to us, completely true, generally true now. And we think, well, if that's normal, then Leviticus or whatever Paul's saying in Romans and all that stuff has to be 100 percent applied to me the same. And that's not true, and that's why we have to understand context and what's going on. So I appreciate you uh, dragging that out uh, and laying that out. I didn't mean in a bad way, dragging that out. <laughs> so I have one question before we wrap up then. People in the Reformed community in general, we love, you know, Catholics too, love church history, love to point to the – by the way, I said this during the on the – the Council of Worms or the Diet of Worms, the Diet – what a terrible name. It's terrible branding. Had they – Come up with a better name, like, y'all stink, get your justification right, counsel or something. People might be paying better attention. Um, the just as if I never sinned uh, meeting or whatever. But anyway, in church history, are there those who, because uh, who can you point to in church history that says, yeah, they also struggled with this view or held this view of Romans. You know, we know there's plenty of modern people who people would respect like you and and that's about it, but no, I'm kidding. (laughs) So who could you sit there and go, Oh yeah, well, uh, not, I don't even know. I'm just throwing out names, John Knox or Spurgeon or someone held to this. I know Spurgeon probably didn't, but someone held to this view of Romans seven. Yeah, there are not many. Um, Mm -hmm. in fact, it's mostly modern folks. Doug Moo is similar to this and, uh, Shriner is sort of, in mm-hmm. that ballpark, I think, although, uh, no, I don't think it isn't Schreiner. I need to go back and look and okay. see what Schreiner believes. Uh, I don't know. I don't know of anyone that, uh, that I'm sure there is somebody, but uh, uh, John Brown was pretty close. Mm-hmm. He was back uh, several hundred years. Um, as far as early church fathers, yeah, I'm not aware of anybody who, who saw it this way, but in the context, it just seems so obvious to me. Yeah, it always feels like, uh, who was the guy who like realized he was going to switch on baptism and stopped because he didn't want to? Zwingli, like he probably yeah. would have got there, right? Like he was all, like yeah. and John Owen, like you read Owen on Hebrews and like you're yep. a new covenant guy, you know that? And he's probably yep. like, no, I'm not. Bunyan yeah. too, very close, yeah, John. Very Bunyan close. Knows. All right, well, Doug, uh, we appreciate it. if you like this video, please like it on YouTube, like it on Apple Podcasts, Google, comment. We will read them if we if we see them and like them. We appreciate the comments people have been giving. Um, we know that there's been some people encouraged by your Bible study. 
that you're doing Monday through Friday as well. Will that continue over Thanksgiving and all that? Will you take a little break? What are you yeah, going to we'll do? We'll probably keep going. Yeah, oh, I, I haven't, haven't decided, but probably, yeah. Do a special Thanksgiving proclamation from the Cross the Crown podcast. Uh, so, yeah, we, we appreciate that. And so, I don't know. What do you want to do next? Do you want to tackle into a little bit more of the details of Romans 8? I like to discuss so people can see. Like, sometimes we don't always know where we're going next. And if people have a suggestion or something, we have done those. This podcast isn't a Bible study format per se, but that's how this study has worked out. So. Well, we've been asked to address a couple of things. One is school choice, mm-hmm. homeschooling, uh, private schooling, public schooling, okay. that kind of thing. So we definitely need to cover that in the next couple of weeks. We've been asked to cover divorce and remarriage. That'll be a pretty heavy one. Um, we could also dive into chapter eight of Romans. I don't know. Maybe we're maybe we're good yeah. on that. Uh, yeah, I'd say if people want to comment and throw their hat in the ring, we'll take a take a look at it, see what would be helpful. But uh, we got a whole list of topics that are right. worth covering. Differences um, between PC and NCT. Are there any differences? Things like that. Yep. We got to um, talk about that. Formal church membership. Doug and I um, have a little bit of a disagreement on that. I wouldn't even call it a disagreement. I would just, I'll just tease it out. Uh, I'm fine with church membership like a list. I just, my argument is, I don't think it's 100% biblically required. Is my argument. And so those are uh, things that we could discuss and get into. So, which has caused some hotly debated Marco Polos between myself and some friends. So we will (laughs) get into those. All right, Doug, as always, the whole point, and we are so thankful for what we saw in Romans 6 and then uh, in Romans 7, that what we can do, we are not conflicted by if Christ is living in us, we can do what? Live intentionally Christ obsessed in all things.